Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is The Mystery of Life. What's it all about? And joining me from Arizona, I believe it is, is author David E. Peoples. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Yes, you're welcome. This is a an interesting uh, approach or an interesting concept. Uh, a lot of people have tried to figure out what in the world life's all about. You have taken on a uh, just a, a humongous task in getting this done, 466 pages or so. Why did you feel uh, you had that itch that needed to be scratched? Okay, well, you know, we live in a... In a world, there are many competing worldviews, and you know, 300 years of scientific skepticism has taken a a great toll on Judeo-Christian values. And what what we find in modern Western culture is the power centers of education, media, government, theoretical science, and entertainment are pushing a materialistic worldview which is leading to agnosticism and atheism. And the natural outcome of that happens, turns out to be an unprecedented moral decline in our our society. So I wanted to get some information out there where people can take a look at the real evidence. Um, Are they being told the truth? Hmm. Is truth relative or is it absolute? Because it makes a big difference. If it's relative, then everybody chooses their own set of moral values. Right, right. Um, uh, your your background, in addition to being an author, uh, what would that be? What would qualify you to delve into such a complex subject material? Well, um, I've had an interest in um, apologetics for uh, a number of years, but I'm also... My background is in science. I took a degree from the University of Washington in pharmaceutical science Hmm. in 1974. And I have, so I've always been around science. So to me, I have that analytical mind. I want to know not only, okay, this is true, but why is it true? You know, show me the evidence. Good. So as as I put together my interest in science, my background in my interest in history, Uh, my interest in theology, when I put those things together, it tells me what you need to do is is tie these in together so that people see that science and and faith are not in conflict. Right. Now, would you, in your description of, uh, let's say, uh, evolution, that is still really a theory, correct? Correct. And yet it's being taught as a, a fact, it is being taught as fact in our culture over and over, and you can't even watch a, a nature program on television without them talking about that as fact. Right. Now, Darwin himself, was he actually a believer in uh, in, in what has become traditional evolution, or did he have just a, a quizzical mind trying to put the snap the, the a picture of uh, what was taking place in the world and try to make sense of it? Well, believe it or not, Darwin started out in theology Mm -hmm. when he was in England. 
and he decided that he had a great interest in um, a naturalist um, approach to uh, exploration that when he when he went on his trip down into the Galapagos, the one book that he took with him besides the Bible was um, Charles Lyell's book um, on geology, mm. the principles of geology. And that became really his biggest influence in terms of, uh, you know, the geological age uh, concept. And and then when he started thinking through the, the possibility of evolution, it seemed to fit right into what Charles Lyell was teaching well, that's through his writing. Right. So he just became enthralled with it and and it, it led one thing led to another and then of course uh, you know what happened with his publication in 1859 that really really caused a, a big change toward uh, western culture thinking in terms of naturalism not and and science there are scientists today that don't buy into that obviously and i i think there are even scientists and i don't know where you stand on global warming and and other pop uh, sciences that are happening today uh, those uh, again are unproven unproven facts of science you have uh, in chapter 1 a couple of uh, sub chapters or subheadings that i think are are of value uh, one is design demands a designer, and then you ask the question, "What is true science? How did you uh, marry those two concepts together?" Okay, so so there's there's a couple different ways to look at science. You can look at it as theoretical science, which is to say, this is what we think happened, right. And we're going to research and see if the evidence uh, confirms our suspicion of, of, for example, how the plate tectonics and how the continents divided and things like that. But the, uh, the, the science that I'm interested in is observational science, experimental science. We call that empirical science. Yes. Where you, if I wanted to show you, prove to you that a bar of ivory soap floats, all I would have to do is get a basin of water and drop a bar of soap in it in your presence, and then you would observe the result. Yes. That's empirical science. Mm. That's, a, that's a valid difference in a lot of what is being touted as science and scientific uh, research and uh, conclusions in our world in the 21st century. You have uh, a number of chapters, and the thing that's, I guess, wonderful about it is that if I was a researcher or someone curi- curious about your approach to, uh, to understanding the universe, uh, this is all not only chapters, but it's uh, sub-chapters, and I can I can look into a topic like the fruit fly fiasco and the fossil records and and DNA and other things that are you know obvious in our world, and really find a a, a discussion that may help me find a conclusion. Would that be the way to describe what you've done? Uh, yes, I think that's that's a fair. The chapters are not short in length, as you can tell, and so there's there's quite a bit of material in each chapter, and I try to take it take uh, the topic of the chapter and break it down into segments. 
you know, like we're talking about fruit flies, we're talking about photosynthesis, we're talking about, uh, you know, fossils and the fossil record and mm. all of these things. That gives the reader a chance to say, um, okay, I'm going to go back to that section on the fossil record because there were some things in there I have questions about. And that way they can easily, you know, locate those those ideas and explore them further. And you have a bibliography in the back under topical uh, index that, that really underscores other opinions and, and sources that you've used to create this read. Yes, yes. Uh, I would say the most challenging thing about the book was the colossal amount of time in study and research that was required before I could even begin the book narrative. There are There are 360 references in the back of the book. So this isn't just my opinion. This is uh, this is the testimony of many of some of the some of the great experts of science and history, and many of them Nobel Prize winners, and what they discovered to be true. So um, I tried to put all that together, and obviously there is a great deal of expertise in different fields that can add to, you know, the thoughts that I'm presenting. Absolutely great. The book itself, because it is an extensive read and the research was intense, how long did it take, David, to complete? Uh, well, I've, I've uh, like I said, I had an interest in science and, and theology and such for, for many years, so I was gathering material for uh a dozen years before I even started the book project. Mm. But the book project itself was about a 10-year uh, effort. Wow. that uh, That's obvious, at least from looking at it superficially. There's a lot of material in here. Was there, um, in, in your evaluation of, of how you presented the material, is this a complicated book for someone who's not uh, maybe super educated or well-educated in the sciences? Is this something that uh, a layman can pick up and read and, and actually benefit from I, and be inspired? I honestly think it is. I, I've read a lot of technical uh, material by uh, scientists with, with PhDs, and some of it is very hard to get through uh-huh. uh, because it's so technical. And what I have tried to do is um, make this take technical information and bring it to focus so that the average person can make sense of it. Beautiful. Now, obviously, you're going to have some technical um, ideas when you're talking about DNA and cell research and so forth. But I believe I was fairly successful in making it pretty readable to the average educated adult. I'm saying anywhere from college age on up, if you have an interest in, you know, discovering answers to life's most puzzling questions, that, you know, it it should hold your attention. And would you also describe this, I guess if you could use an analogy, sort of as an attorney uh, presenting his case, uh, this is not necessarily a, a hit you over the head and this is the only way to believe life, but it is a way to describe your journey of understanding the universe and life and also 
in, in a subtle way, describing uh, a, a life of uh, beliefism or beliefism. I think that's the right word uh, that uh-huh. that that will benefit the reader. Well, yeah, because you know, if you believe that the truth is what gives us, you know, freedom in life, if you build your life on a on a, a foundation that is that is not based on truth. It's not a good way to live. My goal is to break down the myths and establish a foundation of truth upon which a worldview can be uh, founded that will last and that will result in fulfillment and satisfaction. I'm talking about intellectual fulfillment, too, not just, Absolutely. you know, oh, I'm a happy person, but as you know, anyone pursuing even a Christian view of life, they want to be intellectually fulfilled. And so I believe the evidence can provide that. This uh, was an extensive project for you. Has it stimulated your mind into uh, possible other areas that you may want to explore in the future? Uh, are, yeah. Are you to still some recovering? Still I'm recovering. kind of thinking, I've been thinking along the lines of of providing some type of a, um, a Reader's Digest version of the mystery of life so mm. that it can be accessible to a greater number of people, maybe uh, breaking down some of the uh, technical uh, thoughts to make them a, a little more, uh, I guess, appreciated by people who don't want to sit down and read a 466-page book. Right. Now, have have you had uh, feedback? Have you been able to share this with uh, with others in the maybe the science community or the, um, you know, uh, the community that has has uh, responded to your your style of writing and the contents of your book? Um, I've had a limited amount of feedback. Uh, it's the marketing campaign for the book is just really getting underway now. I've shared it a lot with Ray and and uh, even people I don't know who have an interest in this topic. The feedback has been really positive. Uh, and, and like you said, it's a it's a book. There's a lot of material there, so yes. it's it's not a it's not a novel. You have to bite it off in little chunks, you know. Sure. And and what is your goal? Yeah. What is your goal for for sharing this uh, this wonderful journey that you've been on and uh, the research you've done? What is your goal? What do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, let's see. The key, the I guess the goal is to help people find uh, a foundation to build their life upon that is going to answer the difficult questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? These are questions we all have to answer and we're forced to because we can't escape the fact of human mortality. That's true. That forces all of us to search for meaning and purpose in a world that's plagued with death and disease. Hmm. So we all have to think about these questions, whether we want to or not, most people put them on the back burner and maybe never address 
my goal is to get people to take a pause. Life's busy. We live in a technology drip. Is we're moving at such a, ha- a high pace. We I want to see people take a pause and consider, you know, these difficult questions. Have I found answers to these questions that I'm satisfied with? And so that's the goal is to get people to thinking about questions that they have probably put on the back burner and and are afraid maybe to address. The beautiful thing about this, because you've broken it down into chapters and subchapters or subheadings, is that it's not necessary to sit down in one reading or even over a, a few days just, you know, grind through the reading. It's not difficult to read. I'm not saying that, but it it, it is uh, areas that Perhaps you need to read it and then reflect upon it and try to assimilate the content and the uh, the research that's gone into it. I think that would be a, a wonderful way to approach this this book. Although although there are some who who may may read it in one setting, uh, it also would be great for uh, for students and educators to get a perspective that might be different from what they already have. The title of the book, again, is The Mystery of Life. What is it all about? What's it all about? The author, David E. Peoples, P-E-E-P-L-E-S. Uh, David, where can my listeners get a copy of this? The subtitle is Discovering the Truth in a Skeptical World. Yes. That's what I'm trying to do is yes. to generate some information that will uh, address the skeptical of our world. Beautiful. And this book can be purchased by David Peoplecom dash the Mystery of Life, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Um, all of all of those sources are, are available. Beautiful. And they can do a search under your name and also locate it. Local bookseller, they can bring it in if they request it by name. David, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for the call. Honored to visit with you. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Surgeon's Life with Bipolar Disorder. And joining me from California is the author, Dr. John A. Emery. Welcome, sir. 
Thank you very much. And uh, as you mentioned, my name is John Emery, and uh, I've been a surgeon for over 40 years. And uh, there was a history of some depression in my family, but I had no idea that I was going to develop a variance of depression during my life. And this happened at uh, when I was 39 years old, after I had been a surgeon for uh, 10 or so years. And beyond that point, I had to deal with uh, bipolar disease, or correction, bipolar uh, disorder. Disorder, yes. I just noticed that you, you used the word disorder instead of disease on your book, which uh, makes sense. One thing that, I, that caught my attention and uh, something I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned that, that there are a couple of rather famous individuals that were reported to have uh, bipolar disorder. Abraham uh, one Lincoln. I mentioned was Abraham Lincoln, and I think yes. the other was Winston Churchill. Yes. Now, what did they refer to it in Abraham Lincoln's day? What did they call it? It was called mel- melancholy, and he was that's what melancholy means uh, is depression. Ah. And throughout his uh, life, he had these prolonged periods of depression, and um, they later. Um, through investigation of his life, thought that perhaps he was bipolar, and he was his uh, disorder was primarily one of uh, depression rather than the um, hyperactive phase of the disease. Although uh, perhaps uh, many of his what his tremendous accomplishments were uh, accompanied by some uh, hyperactivity or uh, some uh, enthusiasm that he had uh, developed more than normal from the um, hyperactive phase of the bipolar disorder. In discovering your situation and bipolar disorder, is this something that you found is genetic? Is it environmental in its beginning stages? Or how does it, uh, how does it become established in a, an individual's life? Well, it's uh, a genetic disease which is passed through the family uh, in the form of bipolar disorder or perhaps recurrent depression. And the unique feature about it is that it is uh, a disease which is uh, driven by a chemical reaction within the brain. And um, these uh, brain abnormalities are thought to uh, be a problem with the neurotransmitters, which uh, transfer information from one nerve ending to another and uh, somehow have an effect on the emotional system of our brain to give us uh, abnormal swings of emotion. And to explain the degree of abnormality, uh, I uh, read, about, read about a professor at the University of California, San Francisco Psychiatry Department, who was asked what he, how he would describe this disorder um, if he were to explain it to his children or a patient. And he simply said that, think of the, uh, the worst uh, you've ever felt in your life and then magnify that by 10, wow. and that's the degree of, de- of depression you might have. And on the other hand, think of the best you ever felt and magnify that by 10, and you might uh, see what a bipolar uh, patient uh, experiences in the hyperactive phase of the disease. You have a military background as well, and you mentioned exactly. that you mentioned the Tet Offensive. Well, I was uh, I was uh, the uh, most fortunate part of my whole uh, life was I was very well trained in both medicine uh, and surgery and urology. And uh, at the time I finished um, my internship in Los Angeles, most of the doctors in the United States were being uh, drafted to go to Vietnam. 
Hmm. And um, there was a lottery in effect, and if you uh, got the lottery, you, you didn't go over until after you finished your surgical residency. But if you didn't get it, you went over right as a general practitioner. So I didn't get it, and I went over as a general medical officer uh, with the uh, Third Marine, First Marine Air Wing in Chulai, uh, Vietnam, and that was during the year of 67 and 68. Wow. So because I was there in that period of time, I went through uh, the Tet Offensive 1968, and the day it started was quite a unique experience for me. Uh, you, you mentioned the Tet Offensive, and of course PTSD has been uh, associated with those who have served in Vietnam uh, quite uh, prominently. Yes. Is that also something that might have contributed to your dealing with this uh, with this challenge? I, uh, that's, uh, that's a question I ask in my book, and I, I really, from my perspective, I don't think so. Because um, I just, uh, I mean, we were at war, but I don't believe, I wasn't killing people uh, like a lot of the soldiers were. And I think that's the primary uh, reason they got their PS, PTSD, because they were fighting uh, a guerrilla army and they were killing a lot of people who uh, they didn't know whether they were truly the enemy or not, uh, even though they might if they're shooting at him, they knew that they were the enemy, but as, as they weren't and they were next to somebody who was shooting at him, then they were, they were killing a lot of people that weren't, uh, they didn't know whether the, they were the enemy or not. The enemy hit among the people, and that's the reason for that. Wow. So they had some really bad experiences psychologically. And the, the, the thing about that is that the same condition uh, existed in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and these uh, people who have been there are even uh, suffering from PTSD more than the uh, soldiers from Vietnam. And in my opinion, it's because they're fighting an army without any uniform and they uh, don't know uh, where they are or who they are. And they're constantly on alert uh, for these guerrillas who don't, or who even masquerade as U.S. soldiers. And so that it's a very tense situation for them. And I think that's the origin of their greater incidence of uh, PTSD than you might see from World War II or Korea. Right. Uh, Dr. Emery, as a physician, that's a very intense occupation, has a lot of uh, stress related to it. Did your challenge of uh, bipolar disorder, did that ever enter into the operating room, or was it something that you could compartmentalize to times when you were not doing intense surgeries or, or other related activities? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. And I've always felt that uh, people went into a, a type of work that they were comfortable doing. Yes. So uh, surgeons are actually most comfortable in the operating room because they've been taught how to operate. So they're happy to be there. It's just like a major league player. He's happy to be on the field and he's that's where he's very relaxed because that's what his whole training has um, brought him to. And so he, surgery itself is pretty uh, comfortable as long as things are going well. And it's just like doing a painting or something. You're, if you're a painter, you're very relaxed in your painting because that's what mm. you like to do. Uh, some of the other things that you're not familiar with doing, like some of the um, uh, situations you might encounter with finances or planning of other things, you really get stressed by that because that's not your forte. But surgery is so, your so-called wheelhouse, which is where you're comfortable being. So, in fact, 
doing medicine and surgery is a comfort area for you. Wow. It's stressful for other people because they don't know anything about it. Right. But if I were having to do accounting or something, I would really be stressed out <laughs> because that's not my comfort zone. In the 272 pages where you share your story, the solutions or solution that you have discovered not only for yourself but others, what do you share that you think might be unique or might be a, a great launching pad for someone to get assistance or help? Well, the first thing is to um, uh, to have someone recognize that you have bipolar disease, or if you are manifesting some sign of it, that someone uh, discovers that and has you diagnosed properly. And then after you're diagnosed, they'll, they will give you a treatment plan, and you absolutely have to stick to it. You have to stop using any substance abuse, uh, alcohol, drugs, or whatever. And you have to follow your doctor's uh, plan very closely. And if you do that, then you can look forward to having a, uh, a good life and a productive life. But if you don't follow that plan or you don't take your medication as outlined, you will find that you will have huge problems during your life. And the people around you, even today when I was uh, seeing some patients as a retired part-time physician, the lady was telling me her son was um, bipolar, and he did, he stopped his medicine when he started feeling well, and then he just sort of went bizarre or berserk with his bipolar disorder, arguing and you know really creating bad situations for him. Uh, you so would, you have to take your medicine. You would also uh, would describe depression, even if it's reoccurring, that that is not necessarily bipolar disorder. No, no, it isn't. And uh, uh, bipolar disorder is um, probably, and um, it, it's a much more severe type of a depression because it's controlled by a chemical reaction rather than a reactive reaction. Mm. And it precipitates down very quickly, and it's very severe. And if you don't know, uh, if you don't know you're, uh, you have bipolar disorder, then you uh, there are not infrequently when people will kill themselves. And they're in the face of a normal life. In other words, they're doing fine. They have a job. They're very happy and everything else. And the first, if the first manifestation of their bipolar disorder is a severe depression, then they just accelerate down very, very quickly. And if they, if they go beyond the point where they can salvage themselves, if somebody doesn't help them, then they, they may end up in suicide. With, and this might be a prominent person who's doing extremely well in their life. That's how precipitous the downfall is in a bipolar depression. That's that's an incredible warning just on its own. I've got family members yes. that, that seem to, I wouldn't say they're bipolar, but they do have periods and episodes of depression that seem pretty deep. Some of the medical profession perhaps doesn't understand the ways or the best way to diagnose bipolar disorder. Uh, do you outline some suggestions in your book uh, in getting good medical attention when you need it? Well, if you're, um, if you develop um, the, the depressive side of the disease, of the disease you uh, tend to react to a situation with other people would never consider someone getting depressed about. In other words, you might encounter some minor issue and then just develop a huge depression and so the, you're an observer of you might say, well, what's he worried about that for? I mean, that's nothing. Yep. And uh, but if you see somebody worrying about that little issue and then, die, you know, developing a severe downward depression, 
that's the time when somebody around you might recognize that you need to see somebody. And um, if that happens, you'll do well. But a lot of times it doesn't happen. And people uh, go on to uh, go on to have this problem over and over again during their life. And they may, on the depressive side of it, they may commit suicide. In fact, wow. a significant percentage of adults I think as high as 20 or 18 or 20 percent uh, will attempt suicide at some time during their life. That's that's an incredible warning on its own. I guess uh, dropping your ice cream cone on the ground and getting sad about that yeah, is not exactly. really a good excuse. I mean, it might be something as little as, you know, you're, I don't really know. I mean, you're, you know, your car may not be working well or something. And you mm. that little thing, you just and you just it ticks you into a uh, severe depression. No one can understand why. That is interesting. I think I have some family members that may need diagnosis. Uh, they're not uh, blood yes. relatives, but they are relatives to relatives, if that makes right. sense. Uh, that's yes. what. What is there in your book that you think is unique that uh, may not be found in other exposés relating to bipolar disorder? Well, I think the um, number one is the... Um, uh, the incidence of bipolar disorder is pretty low in the society, as high as 4% maybe. But um, despite that, um, people in the newspaper on the t- television will tell you if somebody goes out and commits some s- crime or some does something strange, mm-hmm. they're frequently, they'll just say that he's probably bipolar, and that's why he did that. Wow. And uh, that's, it's overused in the depressed or in the press and the public uh, when they see somebody do something strange or commit a crime, they'll say that guy's probably bipolar mm-hmm. when in fact he probably isn't. And the people who commit these mass uh, murders, for instance, um, they're, they have uh, other characteristics that have nothing to do with bipolar disorder. And um, the crimes are not, it was only, let's, let's say in, in, uh, in mental illness, perhaps only three or four percent of uh, mentally ill people commit a crime. And there, there were these people that uh, uh, you see on the street and everything, they couldn't commit a crime. They can't put enough uh, planning together to do a crime True. because they're, they're trying to deal with a mental issue that just does, they don't have any, they can't establish a direction to go in. And uh, so they're, they're not dangerous. Hmm. Um, Except to themselves. They're not as dangerous as, uh, you know, a criminal who's probably maybe very cunning and very smart, you know, just uh, on the wrong path. In your research, did you uh, look at Europe or other countries? Is there as high a percentage of uh, that type of illness in, say, Europe? You know, that, that that's an extremely good uh, question, and I can't answer it. That's okay. I, I well, know that's f- a very good thing to uh, look into. In fact, that would be a good uh, reason for writing another book, probably. <laughs> well, I'm I'm thinking that anyway, maybe, maybe no, you might want to do very that. Good question. <laughs> I, well, I've I've been to Europe uh, many times, and uh, there are differences in the environment there. I mean, some good, some bad. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the food the food uh, food side of the industry seems to be much more uh, healthy in uh, at least the European countries than the United States and Canada uh, because of additives and other things. I just thought it might maybe, you know, might maybe uh, be an interesting topic to look into. Well, this is a fascinating book. Fascinating book. It would be. 
Yes, you have uh, written over 272 pages and, uh, in yes. best, and and shared your personal story, the title of which is A Surgeon's Life with Bipolar Disorder. My guest, right. author, Dr. John E. Emery. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Actually, it's on all the book sites, and we're developing a website, and you can Google it uh, just on a Google, A Surgeon's Life with Bipolar Disease, and it's on the other all the other book sites. And the, uh, lot, uh, let's say, for instance, uh, two-thirds of the book is, is dedicated to these uh, different unique and very strange experiences I have had during my life. And uh, when I talk about these, it gives me the opportunity to bring up a number of other medical conditions which people might not be aware of. And I think it, that part of the book will be extremely interesting, even though it doesn't deal with uh, bipolar disorder itself. It gives me the opportunity to discuss some other issues in medicine, which I think the public would be very interested in knowing about. I think that's great. Yeah, there are some wonderful side uh, stories that you've, uh, you have outlined oh, in your book, and I, it, I read one or two of them and thought, Wow, that's that's different. I'm not familiar yeah. with that. There's and, a there's a lot of humor in there too. I mean, with these incidents, they're pretty strange, not related to bipolar disorder, but they can get pretty funny, especially in medicine. Yes, where uh, the situation we are we encounter are much, many times much more humorous than somebody could think of who's trying to write a TV <laughs> program. Well, but I, anyway, I appreciate you taking those side steps in your book. Again, it's 270-some pages, and uh, the title of which, again, is A Surgeon's Life with Bipolar Disorder. My author, John A. Emery, M.D. You can also uh, do a search under his name, uh, E-M-E-R-Y, and uh, locate this book. And I have a feeling there may be something else in the near future. Would that be something we could consider? Yes, and I wrote a book uh, previous to this called uh, U.S. Medical Care in the Vietnam War, which is a small book, too, that's kind of interesting. Thank you for for sharing that. Again, thank you for joining me on today's program. For Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Valley of the Shadow, an account of American POWs of the Japanese. The biographical account of Colonel Nicole F. Galbraith, who began his distinguished military career in 1917. Joining us is his son, and author, Whitney H. Galbraith. Welcome to the program, sir. Well, good morning to you, Jay. 
Well, it's good to visit with you. you this is an extensive read, uh, over 500 pages, I understand. And in reading some of the details on this, your father actually hand-wrote a great deal of his personal history while he was in the military. Tell me a little bit about how this book got into print. Well, I will. I have a, a prepared statement here, if that will work for you. And Absolutely. to help set the table for what we would like to talk about, it's, it's quite an experience for me. I have never been a self-publisher before. But uh, I'm, I've enjoyed the process, and here we are trying to uh, sell the thing. And I think it's a, a very valuable addition to the history of the uh, fall of the Philippines during the war. And I'll uh, launch some uh, comments here, Jay, to help sure. your audience understand what this is and how it came about. I'll preface my remarks by describing Valley of the Shadow, an account of American POWs of the Japanese as a family discovery delayed by six decades. Wow. My father, Colonel Nicol F. Galbraith, known as Nick, was a senior staff officer, G4 Logistics, of General Jonathan Wainwright's during the fall of the Philippines in 1942. He played a critical role in the surrender process of Corregidor in May of that year, having been sent to the boondocks of northern Luzon to locate a fellow commander still at large. The surrender of Corregidor followed the surrender of the main American and Philippine forces a month earlier on the Bataan Peninsula. The critical surrender moment was when the Japanese commander, Masaharu Homa, in May of 1942, refused to accept Wainwright's offer to surrender the fortified islands in Manila Bay, including Corregidor, unless remaining American units still in the field elsewhere in the Philippines came in as well. And that's understandable because the Japanese commander certainly did not want a guerrilla war on his backside. My father, as was one of several offers sent into the field, in this case uh, northern Luzon, to locate a fellow American colonel, uh, Colonel John Horan. The success of that mission was essential in avoiding the annihilation of the 14,000 Americans remaining on Corregidor. The two dime store flags, which are on the book, uh, cover of the book, uh, was provided him by the Japanese themselves, allowing him to traverse between uncertain lines of control in the boondocks of rural Luzon, hoping to avoid attack by either side. And those two flags really are the trigger for the book itself and for the interest that I, we, we hope to develop among the reading public. Wow. That American flag would reemerge in a highly emotional moment in 1945 after the what will become the rescue and release of the prisoners in the Mutton prison camp. Mm. Several American uh, senior Americans. Let me start over. Several senior American staff officers, including Galbraith, were able to retain extensive diaries during their three and a half years of incarceration at various prison camps. Several of these diary collections have been published as direct transcriptions and are quite informative of the daily lives of the POWs. I've included these in my bibliography at the end of the book. Yes. These diary accounts are chronological in format and are very informative of prison conditions and lives in various Japanese prison camps. Valley of the Shadow transcribed from over 1,000 handwritten flimsies that have sat for decades on Galbraith family shelves treats these experiences more thematically 
in third-person narrative form, enabling my father, Nick Galbraith, to offer a psychological, emotional, and moral matrix to help the reader interpret the challenges and personal behaviors of incarcerated American prisoners who suddenly had been deprived of their normal social and physical lives as officers, colleagues, husbands, and fathers. Colonel Galbraith was exercising a more literary bent, describing his own and his prison mates' struggle to maintain their personal dignity and relationships. Valley of the Shadow is an important contribution to the POW literature of that time. And let me go then to back to the flags uh, yes. of the Japanese and American flags on the book cover. In August of 45, following the two atomic bombs and Emperor Hirohito's radio broadcast of surrendering the Japanese Empire, a six-man OSS team was dispatched to jump in at Galbraith's final prison camp in Mukden, Manchuria, together with the senior officers from the uh, Wainwright staff, the purpose of which was to ensure POW's safety in the, pa in the face of possible annihilation by a Japanese uh, camp commander yes. who may not have been prepared to surrender. This episode, OSS episode, was termed Cardinal Mission, whose main purpose was to find General Wainwright, and it was the ability of that OSS team and a specific member of that team to enable Wainwright to join his American colleagues on the USS Missouri in Tokyo. Part of my personal story was finding one of those OSS team members about uh, 10 years ago now living in Golden, Colorado. And as I describe, a very anxious and anticipatory 90-minute drive from my home in Colorado Springs, that was a remarkable uh, moment in my life, finding Hal Leith, and, and the book describes in detail who Hal Leith was as part of this OSS uh, team member. But it was the OSS team <coughs> followed three days later by the Russian Red Army, who had just joined the uh, Pacific War. And the story there, as the book in detail describes, uh, the, the rescue mission and the ability of the OSS team and the Russians to liberate that camp and to free the Americans. And it was quite a, a chronology and a good story. And the book has much detail on how that happened and how Lee, my, what, my good friend who we've now lost, had a Kodak in his genes during that mission, and uh, was uh, and uh, Hal Leith's family has been very gracious in showing me, uh, giving me all the pictures that Hal Leith took that moment, and I have those in the book. Amazing. So it's quite a saga, quite a story, but it's a valuable contribution, I believe, to the general history of our American POW uh, experience during the war in the Pacific, and we we hope that uh, it'll be recognized as such by all of your listeners. Well, anyway, there we are, Jay, and let me please uh, respond to whatever questions and answers you might want to explore here. Well, one thing that, that uh, struck me about the content of your book, it, it reads in some respects almost like a novel because there is a conversation between characters or between individuals in the book. Was that part of the narrative your your father left you on those 1,000 handwritten pages, or is it something that you added out of inspiration? No, the, the, the official, the text of the memoir I'm calling it were entirely my dad's. Now, he uh, deliberately 
turned this into a third-person narrative, hmm. and the reason was that there are other the other biographies that are, that exist were chronological. And this is Tuesday we did this. This is Wednesday we we went over here. Yes. But his my dad's uh, account was much more interpretive, and he did not want to name persons of uh, uh, by name that were his associates, all the senior officers on Wainwright's staff. Right. So he was very careful in, in turning this into a third-person uh, narrative, but it's important to understand that when he wrote this in the early 50s, after he retired, he um, had fresh memory and he had a whole stack of diaries that he was quoting at hand. It was an amazing that these fellows were able to keep diaries all during this three and a half years of imprisonment. But he had very fresh memory and, and uh, immediate access to his diaries, his first-person uh, real-time diaries. So the the account that he has written is, can be reinterpreted as a, as a first-person uh, real-time account. He has uh, cleaned up the language by all means, but, uh -huh. but this is not a, uh, a novel by any means. No, it's a true history, and I hope that comes across. It it does definitely. Uh, again, the only reason I was referencing that is because um, most biographies don't carry with it uh, personal conversation, and and I was uh, uh, thinking that that is a great way to draw. The, uh, the 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 reader into the storyline for sure. When you discovered, uh, of course, I, I say discovered. You your family knew of these handwritten notes, and they sat around inactive for a number of years. It, was sure it did. was it sixty years? Did you say? Yes, but that's almost seven decades. I tell you seven what, decades. locally here in Colorado Springs, our uh, Pioneers Museum now eight years ago had a very ambitious uh, exhibit on the American POW experience during World War II. And the entire Japanese half of that was my father's archive. Because he had bought back a number of documents and diaries, including uh, Wainwright's original surrender order and all kinds of POW paraphernalia, you know, clothing and, and uh, uh, personal items. Uh, and the other half of that exhibit was the German uh, Stahlogluf III, where Steve McQueen did not drive his motorcycle over the fence. <laughs> but that was kind of a fun experience, and that's what triggered eventually my interest. Uh, oh, about a year ago now, I finally pulled out this box of a thousand handwritten flimsies and started reading it page by page. And I said, what should we do with this? And I then found a, a, a publisher, Ex Libris, who thought it was swell, and the rest is history, as they say. It's been quite an experience. Absolutely great. Now, as you began reading those personal accounts, did your father, during his lifetime, share some of the horror of uh, of uh, incarceration uh, with you with the family, or was it in the pages only? How do, how would you describe his uh, his personal life? Well, that's a good question because he was very uh, subdued and reluctant. Reluctance, maybe not the right word. He was always open to conversation at somebody else's initiative. In fact, uh, that we have on tape several uh, audio interviews with him during the primarily the 50s and 60s. And uh, uh, that we now have available. And by the way, I'll, I'll give credit here to the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War, the Nimitz Museum in Fredericksburg, Texas, which now is the repository for the entire archive, including the audios. Wow. But we do have audios where he did uh, at length describe his uh, circumstances, and they're they're quite listenable. 
Well, that that that's fascinating by itself. Now, as you began perusing the pages and transferring those, was there a specific incident or event that stood out in your mind and perhaps you were not aware of? Well, I tell you, the incident that was important is my learning how to use a bloody computer in word processing. <laughs> I'm an old analog guy at my age, and yeah. uh, but I had fun typing this whole thing and then uh, turning it into a word processing edition. And, uh, you know, optical character recognition, I learned what that is. So it was an experience for uh, this old guy to to, um, do this. And one of the major responses, personal responses of my own, was learning about my father things that I never knew. I mean, I'll recommend to any son out there in the world, if you have uh, your dad's archives or history, Get to know your dad by, by going back, if it's decades, and learning more about the man, because this is what has really uh, impressed me, was just a personal uh, familiarization with my own father. That was important to me. Absolutely, and I think anybody uh, who has been blessed with having a father in their life uh, certainly can respect that. My dad wrote a book him uh, of his early life as well. A lot of it I knew, uh, but he was somewhat reluctant to talk about uh, the difficulties that he experienced growing up. So this would be of benefit to anybody that has an interest in World War II history or history in general. And also they'll find it a fascinating story of one person's experience and victory over a very difficult situation. I think those are two inspirational moments that certainly would uh, would jump or leap off the pages. Were there other uh, desires in your writing this or sharing this that you wanted to make sure the readers would understand? Well, one thing, I'll, mechanical thing I'll offer when somebody wants to search the book, it's Valley of the Shadow, P-O-W. And that POW is important because uh, there are about half a dozen Valley of the Shadows out there, and I had to struggle with that title for a while. But it was my dad's own title 60, 70 years ago, and he refers to it in the text. It's quite a remarkable uh, uh, soliloquy that he uh, presented in this entire volume. I think it's a good read. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and the story of your father, Nick Galbraith, who was uh, certainly a character and had a, an amazing life and amazing uh, journey in the military uh, this being the highlight of uh, the story or the book that you have penned, Valley of the Shadow, again, P-O-W after that, by Colonel Nicole F. Galbraith. And uh, the subtitle of this, just above your name, is The Flags of My Father. Whitney H. Galbraith has been my author, friend, and and uh, contributor. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Well, uh, I'm in the process of marketing this thing. That's the next step. And when you're a self-publisher, you can get it online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Ex Libris, my publisher. Uh, and then we're trying to get it into bookstores. In fact, uh, locally here in Colorado Springs, we're in several bookstores. But the national audience can go online really anywhere and search that uh, web page I gave you and, and find the volume. Excellent. And do you have a web page developed yet? Yes, it's at the Valley of the uh, Shadow, P-O-W dot, uh, dot com. That's what's the web address. But Valley of the Shadow, P-O-W, will get you to the web page. Fabulous. And let me spell Galbraith for you, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H. And the author again, Whitney H. Galbraith. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. This is a fascinating read and would be of any would be of interest to anyone that uh, loves history. So thank you for sharing your father's uh, father's story.
Well, thank you, sir, Jay, and I'm excited about this, and I think your, your listeners will be, too. Abs- Appreciate it very much. Absolutely. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. <laughs>